Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Hello, everybody, and welcome once more to a podcast from Cleveland Clinic Electrophysiology. I am Osama Wazni, the section head of EP here at the Cleveland Clinic, and today I'm joined with Dr. Walid Saliba, who is the director of the EP lab and director of Atrial Fibrillation Center, Dr. Mohamed Kanj, who is the co-director of the EP lab, and Dr. Tyler Tagan, who is the director of the outpatient department and also director of our quality outcomes uh, program here at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. We will be talking today about left atrial appendage closure uh, in the setting of atrial fibrillation and patients who cannot tolerate oral anticoagulation. Now, Dr. Kanj, who is our um, director, co-director of the EP lab, uh, could you tell us um, if we are able to do a left atrial appendage closure at the time of um, atrial fibrillation ablation, and who is the ideal patient for this procedure? Um, this is an excellent question. I mean, it's not uncommon that we have patients who may need atrial fibrillation ablation, but at the same time, they have some concerns about taking oral anticoagulation or vice versa, especially that, you know, the procedure where we close the left atrial appendage is technically uh, shares a lot of the steps with an ablation procedure. So here at the Cleveland Clinic, we've had a good um, experience so far with doing concomitant procedures. We've been doing that for the past almost uh, six years, and we've had uh, great track records with excellent safety and efficacy of uh, both of these procedures being done at the same time. I think this is one of the, uh, I think we are probably the few centers, if not the biggest center in the U.S. who perform both of the procedures at the same time. The advantages is patients could have both things done in one visit, uh, the ablation at the same time as closing the left atrial appendage. And this way, we hope that for a patient getting, taking care of the atrial fibrillation, but at the same time, being able to come off oral anticoagulation after two to three months after doing the concomitant procedure. So could you tell us about how many we've done so far? So we have done around 300 uh plus patients and uh, so far some of these patients we and 150 of them we've had more than a uh, a year good excellent follow-up uh, with very very low complication rate we did not see that uh, doing both procedure will increase the uh, complication rate significantly right. but we're getting uh, in fact good results excellent results I think this is the highest uh, single center experience uh, in the world. I mean, there's some pooled data from other places, but I don't think that a single center has been able to achieve uh, this number. So that's, uh, that's a great testament to the teamwork that we do here uh, at, at, at the clinic, because this also involves a clinical cardiologist, an imaging cardiologist, their, their own patient's physician, and our team uh, here at the Cleveland Clinic. We're going to switch gears here now uh, and uh, with uh, Dr. Tyler Tagan, who is our director of the outpatient department and also the director of our quality control here at the clinic that we take uh, very seriously. So uh, Dr. Tagan, a lot of our patients are not uh, you know, simple. They have complex issues and have had uh, previous procedures in the past. Can left atrial appendage closure be performed in patients? I'll give you a few scenarios here. A patient who's had valve surgery, mitral or aortic valve surgery. A patient who has a uh, atrial septal defect, for example, closure device. Can left atrial appendage uh, closure be performed in these patients? Are, are there any restrictions? Yeah, 
that's a great question. I, I think the way to approach this is to step back and think about AFib in general, when we use anticoagulants, how we approach stroke prevention just in general terms. And in some ways, this isn't that different than looking at direct oral anticoagulants versus warfarin. Warfarin's got a much broader uh, indication. A lot of this comes down to whether or not we think this is non-valvular AFib. Uh, and that can get confusing. I think people look at that and think that a little bit of regurgitation or stenosis or even a prior surgery may be a contraindication to either direct oral anticoagulant or potentially closing the left atrial appendage. And although that hasn't been studied clearly, uh, it's, it is the case that direct oral anticoagulants and the watchman or other forms of closing the appendage are safe in that uh, situation, and we've had that. Uh, Valvular heart disease is when someone has a mechanical valve, has rheumatic heart disease, significant stenosis. That's a different population. If someone needs to be on a blood thinner for some other reason and warfarin's better, then that's a different population. But for these patients that we see quite a few of here that have complex disease, have had uh, closures or uh, complicated valve surgeries with bioprosthetic valves uh, and an open appendage, the answer is that we have done those. The outcomes are good. I've looked at the quality. Um, and it's similar to, to what we see with patients that don't have that. Specifically with the ASD, uh, it, there is a warning because it can be difficult to get around the ASD. But if the imaging is good, uh, we have been successful at getting transeptal access around the ASD and then implanting a watchman device in the left atrial appendage, closing it, and then getting the patient off the blood thinner. So how about... Uh and just to um, extrapolate that, how about patients who have had uh, percutaneous valve procedures like TAVR and mitral clip and tricuspid valve clip? Is there a problem, consideration to putting a left atrial appendage closure device in these patients if they are candidate for it? Yeah, I, th I think it's the same thing that we, we don't have a lot of trial evidence in this group and it's growing. Um, but places where we're innovating and looking at this, we, we can do it. I think it is safe and our outcomes have been as good in that group as they have been in those that haven't had those procedures. So finally, we want to address the issue of um, leaks. And this is going to be for the three of you here. And what do we do about leaks? When is a leak important? Because I know now a lot of patients may have already had left atrial appendage closure. And now they will go back for follow-up and they're told, uh, sorry, but there is a leak and we may need to do something about the leak. So I'm gonna start with Dr. Saliba here. Uh, could you tell us, you know, what the data supposedly says about leaks? When are they important? Are they important at all? And then we'll move down uh, the panel and talk about what are the options if we think that the leak is important or significant and we need to do something about it. So that is an important question, and I, can, I will tell you what we know now and what do we do now, and I can just give you a brief idea about where we think this is going. When we put a device, obviously the idea is for the device to seal the uh, opening of the left atrial appendage. So we do not want to see any leaks around that device. Uh, when we looked uh, at the data of how many of these devices that were placed do have a leak? Well, with the newer devices, I would say probably around 10% or so will show some kind of a leak, not bad leaks. And when I say not bad leaks, meaning that the size of the leak from around the device is less than five millimeter. 
And that is, let's say, an arbitrary kind of measurement. Less than 10.5% of the patients have a certain amount of leak. Now, the question is, if you have more than five millimeter leak, then that is an issue. And those patients, we have to continue oral anticoagulation because with that size of a leak, then probably the seal is not great and the risk of stroke is as bad as if you don't have the device. But if the leak is less than five millimeter, the, um, what we originally knew is that um, it is okay not to restart oral anticoagulation because the risk is not significantly high. But there is now new data emerging with longer-term follow-up that seems to suggest that if there is a leak, then the risk is slightly higher than if you don't have a leak. And those patients, what do we do with them? Do we continue oral anticoagulation? Do we try to close the leak in some certain ways? Or do we say, it's okay, the leak is small, let's just keep them off anticoagulation? This is where the research is now trying to answer those questions that, that we have. Um, and this is work in progress, and this is a very dynamic field at this point in time. So this is uh, very important because we have a large study led by Dr. Saliba now. It's called the Real World Evidence in uh, Watchmen. This is pertaining mostly to Watchmen, so that we can... Uh, re Watchman Flex, to look at <coughs> leaks and uh, other things also, but this will be one of the more important aspects uh, to look at. Now, I'll just say quickly before I turn it to Dr. Kanja and Dr. Tyler, uh, Dr. Tegan, in that uh, here at the clinic, we make sure that nobody goes out with a leak. That's the most important aspect. And we take our time and we make sure that the original implant has no leak because a small leak, uh, going out with a small leak may end up becoming a big leak. So the most important thing for our patients and actually for our referring physicians to know is that we take as much time as needed. And especially with the new devices, we can reposition multiple times to get the ideal positioning uh, and ideal result with no leaks. Now, suppose still we have somebody who ends up with a leak and by the way, the data that Dr. Saliba was talking about is not our own data. This is from the previous studies and also from registry data. But now we have a patient who does have a leak. They got their device elsewhere and they have a significant leak. Uh, and are there options that we can give this patient, Dr. Kent? Yes, uh, there's a disclaimer is, is that, yes, we know that these leaks do matter. But we want to make sure that although they do matter, they still patients will still get benefit from having the device in. So it's not that's going to put the patient at any increased risk. It's that is the benefit is less if you have a leak compared to you don't have a leak. So they still have significant benefit, even if there's a little bit of a leak around the device. What to do with that? You know, this is a field of research right now, but most of us think that if it is a significant leak, we could offer to the patient after a careful shared decision-making, the possibility of closing this leak. And depending on the shape, because the leak is a, is a two-dimensional shape, and it's usually, it's most of the time like a crescent, depending on the size of the crescent and where's the location, we may offer a few things. For example, sometimes we could put a vascular plug. Uh, sometimes you could consider an implantzer plug. And sometimes you could consider coiling, or sometimes you could consider the combination of all these therapies. Again, it is the disclaimer is that we don't know the efficacy of all of these strategies, 
but theoretically, they may offer some benefit. Thank you, thank you. And then finally, uh, for uh, Dr. Tegan, uh, we've had a few cases where it was not a small leak, it was a big leak or a, uh, a device that had moved. Uh, and, uh, and then, um, and that is a possibility. And uh, we recently had a patient like that. Uh, so could we speak to that and what are the options there and what we can do? Yeah. If, the, if, the, if the device moves, um, and that, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's freely embolizing and moving around in the left atrium. It, it could just be that it's rocked out and it's uh, moving back and forth and has obviously lost its, its hold. Many times when, when that's happened, then it's going to require surgical backup, which is what we uh, ended up doing on the, on the patient that came in. I think the important point on this, though, is with that initial implant, I think especially if it's one of these that is trabeculated uh, with, with large pectinate, um, to not leave leaks at the start and to not have those big shoulders uh, in particular with any kind of leak, because those are the ones that, that um, I think are higher risk. Uh, and th these, fortunately, after doing thousands here, we really haven't seen that much of this at all. Uh, with it. Have not, uh, What's thanks. more common, I think, is a small leak that they can come after that's a millimeter or two, like Dr. Saliba mentioned. Uh, and then my practice on that would often be to leave them on the blood thinner for a little bit longer, image again in three months. And the majority of those for all of us, uh, they're gone at that point. And so I think that's how you handle this. I'm not sure if it's clinically significant and th those tend to get better. So and in our situation here, because we are at the Cleveland Clinic, we have uh, fantastic surgeon colleagues who, although we get the call about those devices and their misplacement or displacement, uh, we're able to lean on them to provide the excellent care to our patients. So uh, th this patient who, again, was implanted elsewhere but had a displaced device, uh, was able to get surgery to remove the device, close the appendage, and actually also get a maze procedure for her atrial fibrillation that continued to be symptomatic. And she's doing very well uh, at this moment. So on that good note, uh, I want to thank you all uh, for your participation. Uh, I just want to remind uh, our listeners and, uh, and the physicians uh, on the podcast that the indication for left atrial appendage closure now is somebody who has atrial fibrillation, an indication for prevention of stroke because of a high Chad's VAS score, and we defined that earlier in the podcast, but they can't be on blood thinners because of bleeding issues. Then it's a good indication to close that appendage provided they do not have valvular atrial fibrillation, which we also defined, and that's a mechanical valve or rheumatic heart disease with a stenotic mitral valve. Um, and then uh, we're able to manage those patients, even if they had an ASD closure device, we're able to maneuver around it, even if they've had, for example, a TAVR or a mitral clip. Actually, one of our uh, our chairman, Dr. Kapadia, is leading the study on TAVR plus Watchman together. It's called the Watch TAVR uh, study. And then also on the concomitant side, we have a big study that we finished enrolling in called the OPTION trial. It's about AFib ablation and left atrial appendage closure. And a lot of those patients, up to 40% of them, are getting the ablation plus uh, Watchman uh, flex in the same uh, setting. Uh, so I think the future for left atrial appendage closure and stroke prevention uh, is very good. And before we completely close, we'll ask if there are any other comments from the panelists. I just want to uh, expand on what Dr. Wozni said, that we also have research now uh, 
in uh, patients who are allowed to be on oral anticoagulation, but the research, uh, the study, uh, actually take those patients and randomizes them 50-50, uh, left atrial appendage closure versus continuation of oral anticoagulation to see if left atrial appendage closure uh, is beneficial as an alternative option to oral anticoagulation in patients who do not have problems bleeding, who can take oral anticoagulation. So this is an attempt to expand the indication for left atrial appendage closure. And this is research that is on underway at the clinic at this point. So that's, uh, that's an important one. Thank you, Dr. Saliba. So again, uh, the, these studies, there are two of them. One is called Champion and the other one is called Catalyst. And this is in patients who do not have bleeding issues. But again, this is research now. And the patients will be randomized to continue blood thinners or get a device. If you're interested, please contact us. Uh, we are still looking for patients. We're still recruiting. And uh, these are very large studies, more than 3,000 patients in each of those studies. But it will allow us and provide us a lot of information on whether one day we can replace oral anticoagulants altogether with a device. The, of course, that is not the message right now. Right now, the message is left atrial appendage closure is a good alternative to blood thinners in people having bleeding uh, problems. And uh, thank you once more for your attention. And we look forward to seeing you in the next uh, podcast from Cleveland Clinic Electrophysiology. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen at clevelandclinic.org slash cardiac consult podcast.